Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Hey guys, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I am super excited to bring on my friend Matt Brown. If you've been following us, then you know exactly who he is. If you don't, then you're about to learn. Hey, he's really one of the most gifted engineers, drummers, techs, human beings, thinkers that I have ever met. That's why I'm so excited to have him on. A quick introduction here is that he's the producer, engineer, mixer, head recording engineer at Solar Studios in Orlando. He's an expert drum technician, professional drummer. He works not only with bands in the studio, but also percussion and drum lines for college-level performers. Now, that intro does not do him justice. I met him maybe around 2013, 2012, when I was making records with my former partners. We always had different drum techs coming in to help us get the right sound, either on records I was making with them or on my own. And it was a really frustrating thing for me because most of these guys would sit there and they would tune and tune and tune, and they would just not produce the sound out of the drum that I was describing. They'd give me physics this and physics that and all these long explanations, but the results would not work. And comes Matt. And I told him what I wanted, and he was the first guy to ever take what was in here and help translate it through the drum and then through the speakers every single time. And little by little, through working with him, I discovered not only is he a great drum tech who knows how to tune better than anybody I've ever met, but he's a great engineer. Like he'd be giving me advice on use this mic, use that mic, move it over. And he'd have great ideas. And then I realized he's a phenomenal drummer too, because I would have him sometimes show the drummer in the band how to play parts. And it just, shit was always better with Matt. And when I started doing educational content, when I did my first Unstoppable Recording Machine boot camp in 2014, I thought that Matt should give a lecture on how to get great drum sounds because people are coming to learn how to record from me. And my drum sounds are nothing without Matt Brown. So he gave a lecture. People's minds were blown. And that led to him doing more lectures at my boot camps. And then eventually I brought him on my creative live metal recording boot camp with monuments. And people consider that drum section to be maybe the most comprehensive drum course to date. People look at it like a drum tuning Bible. So since then, we've made here at URM a course with him called Ultimate Drum Production that comes out in in uh, March or February. And it puts everything else that we've done in that department is shame. It is the literally most comprehensive drum production course on the planet. And what's great about it is that it doesn't matter what situation you're in. It's not for people with million dollar studios or for people with garbage gear. It's for people who want to learn how to make drums sound in real life, the way that they hear them in their head regardless of their situation. And it shows you exactly how to do that in various scenarios, various real life scenarios. And it is fucking great. 
And without further ado, I introduce you, Matt Brown. So Matt Brown, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. I just saw you, seems like, the other day. How are you feeling after that summit? I'm feeling pretty good. It was exciting. It was a really, really cool time. I didn't realize I was going to uh, enjoy it as much as I did. It was just awesome. Same here. Uh, How's your throat? Mine is just... It it took a couple days to get my voice back, (laughs) for sure. It was definitely tired. So what is it that you enjoyed about it? Like, what were you not expecting to enjoy and what did you enjoy? And I'm wondering, not like as a sales pitch for next year, but because I also enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than I expected to. And I think that that was a uh, sentiment felt by everybody. Yeah, I well, I enjoyed I enjoyed the people. I mean, the guys were awesome. They were really like every single person was just nice and easy to talk to and it, which is kind of the opposite of what I expected cuz most of us just like to be secluded in our rooms by ourselves, you know, and very yes. introverted and don't really like to talk to people, but that um that common thread of uh of why we were all there was definitely the catalyst for some great conversations. So that was that was really enjoyable. Um I think it's the first time in life for a lot of people who do sit behind the computer all day long, secluded, working on what they work on. It was the first time in their lives to actually meet I guess a social peer group. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I, I'm it was it was very cool. It was a very cool experience. Um I really enjoyed the presentations. Um, you know, every, the ones that I got to see where I was where I was at um, were really cool, really insightful, and um, and I and I really enjoyed teaching. Like it was, it was a really enjoying experience to watch people's eyes just open as wide as they could and their mouths agape. You know, after the information that was put out there, you know, kind of was proven. You know, like the, the whole class, my whole class was building up to that final point of like, okay, well, what do the drums actually sound like? And as soon as I hit playback on what I had just recorded in front of them to just to watch their, their minds blow up was awesome. (laughs) It was a great experience, you know? One of them told me that he realized that everything he had been taught were lies because about gear because you did it all on like a Behringer and it sounded amazing. Yeah. It was a literally <laughs> the, literally the whole entire setup that I had, including the laptop, the microphones, the interface, the pre's was maybe $3,000, maybe like maybe 3,500 at the most. I mean, cause some of the microphones were a little bit expensive, but not terribly expensive. Um, like what was the most expensive microphone you had up there? Uh, I had a, a pair of Telefunken M60 Fets, which, nice. you know, those aren't terribly expensive, but, you know, they're pretty penny. Um, you know, and the core, uh, the, the course base, you know, really was focused on the source is the most important. So the source is the drums, the room, the player, the sticks, and the mm-hmm. microphones first. You know, all of those things come together. To form the source. So it was, you know, it was cool. It was a very cool experience. It 
did you get to watch Billy Decker mix? Uh, yes, about four times. <laughs> so four times means no, so, I mean, so, I, so you did like 24 songs. Uh, <laughs> I did, uh, I did sit in on his class twice because we, we had worked out a really cool, uh, kind of thing where the tracks that I recorded during my course, uh, Billy took those in and mixed them during his course, uh, which was just, Whoa, it was I didn't just, know about that. Yeah, That's cool. it was really cool. And it was one of those things like I was just talking to him before we even started the first day. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be recording a song. You know, do you want to mix it? And he's like, sure, bring it all over. I'll, I can fit two songs in an hour while telling everybody what to do. <laughs> and, you know, and um, it was awesome. Like the, I, I got to watch it twice and, and two different days. There's minor differences in the setup that I used. And um, it was great. He actually asked me for uh, the samples that I cut the second day. So I sent the samples from that session that I did that morning with everybody there. I sent, I just sent those to him and he uh, started mixing with them yesterday, I believe. So he was like, I'll send you a track once I use them. Yeah. You're, he's sure to include things that people give him. I've noticed, like I gave him my, uh, my drum forge pack the ELE mm -hmm. and he made a point of putting like my toms or my kick on some country record just, <laughs> and just to prove a point. So awesome. you, you, your samples will end up on some big country record and you will get a text with a video message on it soon, <laughs> including that. I can't wait. I mean, I was not to say that I was shocked. I mean, I, it's just, that was my first time recording with that Behringer interface and preamp. Like, I bought that as like a, a backup mobile rig in case I needed to do something really quick, you know. So it, it's been sitting and not even being used for almost a year. And I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to test this thing out. And um, I mean, not that I was going to be shocked, but I was kind of shocked at the quality that the Behringer had. It was like, okay, this actually sounds really great. And I've, I, since then, I've used those samples on a track as well. And it's like, man, this is, this is, sounds really great. Unexpected, uh, benefit, you know? Were people, I mean, I know everyone was respectful, but were people talking shit at all in advance? I'm like, oh, fuck, he's going to use a Behringer. Uh, no. Well, I didn't hear any of that. I definitely saw some people that were like, what? You know, a little confused, thinking that, you know, this was going to be about the... What the hell did I pay for and right, fly right. all the way from Australia for? I flew all the way from uh, from Spain to watch this guy use a Behringer. Um, Fuck but, yeah. But see, here's that. That was kind of the point of the course is like, you know, preamps. I mean, as you know, because when we did those uh, shootout, the preamp shootouts here at my studio, um, you know, it was shocking how how minimal the difference was between a really nice $4,000 preamp and a $150 preamp. Like the minute, the difference was so minuscule that, you know, it, it, it was just a matter of, of taste, you know, and most people aren't even going to be able to hear it. So, you know, that's the kind of what the point was of the course is like you get the source right. And then the, the last part of the chain doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. It makes minimal difference on your overall sound. So. So speaking of source, how did, uh, I mean, you got a long, long history of getting sources right. And that was ingrained in you as a kid, wasn't it? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, 
my so my dad was a drummer and so i i was just born into drums to begin with i started playing when i was three um and he had a studio in our house uh when i was a kid and so i used to not only play my drums in the living room but play go out to the studio and play his drums and that was my first studio experience playing to the dukes of hazard record when i was four years old were you more into that than like toys oh yeah i mean i had my i had the toys that i liked but um you know legos and anything i could build stuff with was great Mm -hmm. but i mean it was like my my life was riding my big wheel building with Legos and playing drums. And then when I got older, it became, instead of riding the big wheel, it was riding a skateboard, <laughs> Legos and drums, you know, like mm-hmm. those were basically the, the components of, of my, and then drawing. I used to like to draw a lot too. Um, but those components were like basically my whole entire childhood. And, um, you know, so the, the drum thing had, had always been there and I just, I, it came really naturally to me. So, it was fun and it was, and it's never, it's never like playing has never been a, a, a going to work and I hate this type of thing. It's always been, always been very enjoyable, which is, you know, just makes you want to get better. Do you by any chance feel a kinship at all with Kane Cherko? Yeah, a little bit. I, I didn't get to talk to him all that much because everybody wanted to talk to him a lot, but, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I get it, man. Like we he both, grew up in a similar environment. Yeah, we both grew up in a recording studio. You know, his, uh, his is a lot more extravagant and a lot more um, high profile than mine was Hollywood. for sure. <laughs> you know, Hollywood. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, it's like there's a couple things that I, I kind of took away from being in the environment of a recording studio while I was learning how to play my instrument, and that the the biggest the biggest takeaway from that was that I saw that every musician that would come in, uh, just like every voiceover talent that would come in, they all had their own sound. They all had their own voice, you know, literally and musically, they all had a, a thing that they did well. And, and you notice this as a kid. Yeah. I noticed it as a kid. Like it was like, Oh, this guitar player doesn't play the same sounds. Like he doesn't sound anything like that last guitar player that was in. And, so my development of of my drumming not only as a player also encompassed like what does my what do my drums sound like you know and so that was a whole different study that kind of a path that that I don't think a lot of drummers take they don't really pay attention to it they're more So con- you mean like what do my drums sound like in order to complement what this person's musical voice is uh, well, no, more of the finding my own voice and what, like, to the point oh, okay. where I can hear a recording and, like, and this has happened to me a couple times because w- I've been work for hire on people's records and I'll hear a song on the radio and I'm like, man, that these drums sound pretty good and I like what this player's doing. And then it sounds way too familiar and, and it, all of a sudden it'll click. It's like, wait a second. And I'll go back through my library of songs that I recorded, and, I, and it's me. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So you meant every player that's coming in has a unique voice. Right. I must have one too. Exactly, and and so part of of developing that voice to me was not just the notes. And I think a lot of drummers get caught up in just the notes, and that's where it ends. That's where they think their voice 
their voice as a musician ends at how many notes they can play and how fast they can play and what how groovy it is and you know and then maybe it extends into their cymbal choices a little bit um but most people stop at the learning process of of defining your voice in the instrument itself you know like why do you use a certain uh drum set or snare drum and why do you use those heads and how do you tune the drum like no people don't a lot of drummers don't really pay attention to that stuff. So you think that all that stuff is what goes into a drummer's voice? I think all, yeah. It's not just the notes you play. It's not, it's how you hit the drum. It's the heads you choose, the tuning you choose, the drums you choose, the cymbals you choose, you know, how you hold the stick. Like all of that stuff is, is is in a player's voice to me. And the really iconic, um, drummers that everybody knows they have a signature sound like the even if uh if somebody else was to sit behind their kit it still wouldn't be them you know you could sit any and i'm you know i'm sure some people have seen this at nam every year where they do the the bonzo bash where they play a bunch mm-hmm. of led zeppelin songs and different drummers come in and play on a bonham kit that is set up and tuned like bonham's kit was and every single drummer that comes up there and plays, they all sound completely different, you know? And these are all top-tier drummers as well, and they all have their own voice, but, you know, like, that just proves, like, it's not just about the notes you play, it's about the little things, the details, just like with guitar players, like how you hold the pick and the angle of the pick hits hitting the string, how that defines your, your voice as a guitar player, you know? Like, it's the same thing with drums and... I just took it a step further to where it's like, okay, well, how do I get my drums to sound the best regardless of the player? You know, I want to my I want, interesting. I want my drums to have a certain sound to where it doesn't matter who's playing them, they they will sound good, you know. So you created a a an inanimate clone of yourself? Yeah, I mean kind of. But I mean, here's the thing: as as you know, it's still no, you know, what how I hit the drum is how I hit the drum, and yes, and it doesn't matter. It'll still sound different, you know. Um, when when we're cutting a record, there's a reason for why. No matter who the drummer is, I ask you to take the sample hits, so you don't wear out the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the reasons. But yeah, I, I mean, I get it. Like, I mean, that was part of my development. Um, was this a conscious thing, though? I I mean, yes. I mean, part of it was st- part of it stemmed from the fact that. Where most people would play to records in their garage, which I did a lot of that. I did a lot of garage playing to, you know, Rush and Yes and Huey Lewis and the News and the Police and the Top 40 Radio, whatever was on. I would literally play for hours in my garage. There's a lot of that involved in developing your your chops and that side of the of your voice. But um, I was fortunate enough to wear some of that time playing to records was with my dad in a studio where we had the whole kit mic'd up and we would go take turns playing to a track off a Steve Winwood record and, you know, and then come back and listen to it, you know, how I, how you played versus the track. And then that led me to study the sounds that the drummers had on records. Let's take a second. Let's take a second to just let people know that your dad's not just like some yokel with with <laughs> with like a shitty four track or something. No, 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 not at all. He's he's had 
a professional career. He's owned right now. He has two studios. He's got a, a, a bigger, a larger studio in his house, which is um, a music facility uh, that has a, a large tracking room and a, an ISO booth that's big enough for a drum kit, as well as five one surround mixing setup. And is I mean, it's legit. Euphonics console. Uh, the room was designed by Rob Rosati of Rosati Acoustics. Like it's 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 legit. And then he's got another a secondary studio that's a voiceover house. Um, and he's had he's owned his own studio since 1990. Uh, before that, he was the house engineer for Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, which is a, a huge publishing company that used to own SeaWorld. Uh, and he did all of their in-house. Uh, voiceover production stuff. So, so, and before that, you know, we lived in Jacksonville. He had a studio in his garage, in the garage. They converted the garage into a studio and had been recording uh, bands out of there as well. So, I mean, his his history is is long and rich. And you know, he's he's one of those guys that if you know him in town, you know him as one of the best engineers to put out mm-hmm. work. But he does so much work in in a field that most musicians don't even know about that you nobody would know who he was unless unless you knew him through me or met him at his studio you know type of a thing i met him once because he was dropping off a drum that we were renting from him right yeah he's he's an encyclopedia man i mean he really i noticed he's an he's an encyclopedia and and even this morning i went over there uh to show him my new microphone and uh you know kind of talk to him about he's he's in the final project well he's just sent a record out to mastering and um he's been keeping me in the loop of the process because the artist you know doesn't have a huge budget and you know had a mass a friend that does mastering in new york and you know so he's keeping me in the loop of the thing so i was talking to him about that and and the microphone and and even in that conversation i walked away from it going man i never thought about that type of you know approach to a mix you know and this is it's really cool i mean i'm very beneficial that i have that my father is is an encyclopedia of of that stuff doing the same thing that i do well i mean i'm doing the same thing that he does (laughs) definitely definitely rubbed off did uh did he impose it on you at all not at all there was i mean he never he never showed me how to play drums he just showed me how to work the record player um because you asked yeah, I wanted to I wanted to play to records and he's like here's how you play to records and he you know he never imposed on me anything. He, uh, him and my mother were just very supportive of everything that I wanted to do and it just kind of stuck and I you know I guess they saw the the uh natural uh gravitational pull that I had towards music and just encouraged it along the way. Um and then when the how I got into the studio side of things is you know, I was working my first job at, uh, well, I want, wanted to start working a job because I wanted to, you know, pay for a car. And um, so when I was 15, he asked, you know, he's like, I can use some help editing uh, this voiceover stuff. So I started then and then he bought Pro Tools when it first came out. And that was the beginning of that for me. And, and you know, it was a little bit laborious in the in in my teen years because I was sitting in a studio by myself editing dialogue for hours and hours and hours on end mm-hmm. and most of it in a foreign language that I did not really understand. So, you know, you, 
you're listening for technicalities there. You're listening for clicks and pops and breaths and, and plosives and making sure that the pacing matches what needs to be on the paper. And, you know, it's a very technical job. So there's, as a kid... So that's what happened to your teen years? Yeah, that's... I spent basically... Oh, man. 15 to about 19, 20 doing that as my part-time job while going to school. Wow. The, most people look back at those years as, like, the years they got laid the most, that they scored the most touchdowns. Right. I mean, everything I, happened, and you sat there yeah. editing foreign language stuff, right? Legal documents or something. Yeah, yeah. It was like learning how to speak Spanish, and I walked away from it with like very little knowledge of any Spanish at all. But <laughs> I can kind of read it. Um, yeah, I mean, that was my that was the job that I had. I worked at. I did one other job besides being besides music. Period. Um, I've ever done in your ever, life? Well, a musical recording ever in my life. I've had one other job, and that was uh, I was a bag boy at Publix when I was 16. Because mm, that was fun. Yeah, it was one of those where the studio was a little slower, and my dad's like, well, you got to pay for this car insurance. So I forced, you know, I went and got a job at Publix and bagged groceries for like eight months at part-time, and it was horrible, and I hated it. And I hated it a lot more than I hated the editing foreign language at the time. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so the choice became really clear. Like, okay, I can make uh, more money and, you know, edit this foreign language or I can work at Publix, you know, grocery store, which was not fun. Did you kind of promise yourself that would never happen again? Uh, no, no, I never made that promise. I just kind of was like, you know, hey, if if I can find a way to to do music or this other skill that I now have, which is running pro tools and recording and editing. If I can do either one of those two things, like I'll be fine. And I'm sure there's lots of work, you know, here being, you know, being Orlando, there's, there's a ton of work with the theme parks for players. There's uh, a lot of work for the studio. You know, my dad's studio is super busy and there's a, a lot of studios here now. Um, you know, so the the opportunity to support myself was always there. I just had to like really want to do it. So it, that gave me the drive to like to become good at drums and to become good at editing. So that I always had one or the other that I could that mm-hmm. I could do to you know to pay bills and you know afford to live on my own and be a real adult. You know <laughs> and. So, and that just turned into whatever I am now. Like I, it's like one thing led to the next, led to the next, and you know, now here. Those are two skills that I feel like, you know, when people say that going into music or audio is kind of a, I don't know what the word is, so kind of like an unstable choice or right risky. Yes, risky. Like if I was your uncle and I was like, son. <laughs> you don't want to do that. I I really do think that a good counter is, well, I'm going to become a badass editor and badass drummer. Yeah. And if uh, you do those two things, you will, and you're not, you know, you don't smell bad or something. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you don't have a drug problem. You will probably always be employed as long as you're in an area where those services are needed. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that is the key. I think the location 
of you know the location here was a big part of that development and that ability to to do those jobs uh, for a living you know like there's not there's not, I think there's only one other place in the world that's like Orlando or at least in the US in the sense that it has a lot of opportunities to work in a theme park environment which is you know it's not huge money but it's consistent money when you get in um and we have you know, besides Disney, we have, you know, SeaWorld and Universal and each one of those has multiple parks and there's groups in every single one of those parks, at least one that has a drummer, if not seven groups that have a drummer, Mm -hmm. you know? So there was a lot of opportunity to play, um, with the, the parks also being here. There's also a lot of opportunity for, uh, editors for especially dialogue editors, um, you know, there's, there's a, for a little bit like nine eleven kind of, um, changed my playing outlook in the, in the theme park world, at least because when nine eleven happened, everybody freaked out and especially Disney freaked out. Cause you know, people weren't going to travel as much and, and the tourism definitely took a hit after nine eleven. Yeah. And, um, part of that hit was letting go the, some of the bands that I was working for at, at Disney. So that forced me to go back to my studio thing. And at the time my dad had hired, you know, cause I was busy playing full time for the most part. My dad had hired somebody to, to do the job that I used to do. So he didn't, you know, have a place for me. So I had to, I had to get out there and find another gig. And the only other besides playing is like, I have another skill, uh, you know, of pro tools that I've been working on since 1991. And here it is 2001. And, um, I have 10 years of Pro Tools experience. I've mixed three records at home on my I'm my crappy iMac with Pro Tools free, you know, eight channels at a time. Um, and I just decided to open the phone book and start co- uh, cold calling recording studios. And I did. <laughs> and, you know, like I got down to the S's and I found this one I never heard of. And I gave them a call and they were a radio and television uh, production house. So I called him and I said, Hey, I'm a, you know, Pro Tools editor, audio engineer. Um, just calling to see if you had, if you need anybody. And they didn't need anybody at all. They were all stocked up, staffed up. Um, but when I told them that I had been working on Pro Tools since version one, they were like, Well, come by and we'd like to talk to you. And I had lunch with the owners and, um, the other engineers. They gave me a test, um, which was basically like assemble this uh, radio commercial. Um, you have an hour to do in it in Russian. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it was actually in English, which was like okay. I, I, I this is a nice change. But the test was assemble assemble this radio, like produce this radio commercial. Follow the script. Here's our music library. You can search it on the computer here, um, and you have an hour to do it. And it was like a, a sixty second spot. And it included, you know, editing the vocals, um, putting all the sound effects in, mixing it, and doing a final bounce of it. And I finished the whole thing in 33 minutes, which they were shocked because, you know, one of their engineers that they had working for them there couldn't do that in 30 minutes. You know, so I basically forced them. I didn't force them anything. They just saw that I was good and they built a, a control room for me. And added, it's funny how, funny how that it. works. Yeah, it's, it, hey, is, it is. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So it sounds like the ground fell out from under you a little bit because of 9-11. And 
for a lot of people. And that's a common thing right. in lots of industries that you're seeing it in YouTube now with a lot of video content is now getting demonetized. Right. And so suddenly people who were, you know, doing great suddenly are overnight, it all changed. Right. Or like, or you play in a band called As I Lay Dying and the next day your <laughs> front man right. gets arrested and then the band is, look, point being that stuff can change yeah. from one day to the next and then suddenly your source of income or, hey, my friend Josh Newell, uh, not to get morbid, you know, was working for Lincoln Park for 10 years. Right, yeah. One day the guy's dead, yeah. which is RIP, but, you know, like life happens. Out of curiosity, when life happened and all of those bands that you were playing with basically got fired, so you hit the streets and got yourself work. How many people that you knew contemporaries from back then did the same thing? And how many people were just like, life's too hard. Uh, the universe is conspiring against me. This industry is all a racket, bro. Yeah. I'm, I'm out. Um, You know, like, I mean, here's the thing is honestly, I was playing with guys that were significantly older than me. Like one of the bands that I was playing in, like almost everybody there was at least 15 years older than me. Um, so you must have been what, like 21, 22? I was, in 2001, I was 25, 26, 26. Oh, okay. So I was still young. So I mean, like, I had been playing. So they were like 40? Yeah, they were in their 40s. Uh, they all That's were the... married with kids. Like, it was a completely different thing. And they were, you know, I was a, a, a freelance musician for the park. So I, I basically subbed in for all these guys, all the full-time guys that wanted to take time off for whatever reason. So, you know, like I had a little bit of a luxury in the fact that I could change up who I was playing with mm -hmm. on a regular basis. And I could also work, you know, more days without, without hurting the company, you know, basically, you know, like any of these full-time guys, if they picked up an extra day, it was, it was, uh, at the time, it was an overtime for the company, whereas me not being hired full-time, for me, it was just a sixth day at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So I was able to juggle a lot more gigs that way, um, and it gave me some freedom. But at the same time, it instilled into into me, like, the take-all-the-work-you-can-get aspect of a freelancer, which has, I mean, that's all I've ever done is freelance. So, you know, when something, when a gig falls through for me, I, you know, I know a lot of people that in that same era were just freaked out and they just drown in their miserableness and, uh, you know, were legitimately scared, which you, they should be. They had a lot more bills to worry about than I did. Um, you know, I was just a well, kid. I mean, I think it's perfectly fair to be scared. Yeah, totally. Totally. But I, you know, for me, I was scared for like an hour. You know, like the first hour that I found out that that band, that two, I was playing at the time I was playing with four bands and two of the bands were uh, let go. And then the other, one of the other gigs that I was doing there on property, I walked away from, I quit because I couldn't stand the guy who was the, um, it was a, it was a contracted group and I couldn't stand the promoter. He was from Italy and he was a complete and total jerk and didn't, he owed me money. Like, you know, so I quit one, two of the other bands got fired. And then the third band, the third group that I was working with, with which employed, uh, uh, like two, like, oh God, I can't even remember. There's something like 30 drummers a night 
for their parade, that for me became a little bit, a little bit like, you know, I was, I was not very happy there. So mm-hmm. to walk away from the gig was not, was not difficult for me. And I was like worried for an hour, but after that it was just like, for, okay, I'll just find d- something describe else. that hour. It was just a lot of what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to pay for my apartment? How am I going to pay for this? You know, like a lot of those typical questions that everybody would have when they had the rug pulled out from underneath them, you know? I have to admit something. I think it happens not just when you have the rug pulled out from under you, at least for me. (laughs) Like uh, right after the summit, Mm -hmm. which I got home, um, I got home on Sunday or Monday and... You know, it was like, what an unbelievable event. I can't believe we've come this far. Yeah. Like, I can't believe it. Can't believe it. Fuck. What if it all goes away? What if we can't, like, what What if it all falls apart tomorrow? What if we can't do better? What if right. that was the highlight of life? What if, what if, what if? Right. For like a, a 30 minute or 45 minute little spell. And then I just got right back to work. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I think getting to work is, is just how you do it. Like that's, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I think dwelling on something is, you know, this not to get too conceptual here or, (laughs) but if you, if you psychologically, if you sit there and dwell on something, you make that a reality. And, um, I've always kind of lived under the idea, like if I'm going to make my own reality, I'm going to make it what I want to make it, what I want it to be. You know, mm-hmm. instead of, well, the universe is, is dealing this to me and I have no choice. It's like, no, I have a complete choice in wherever I want to go, whatever I want to do and however I want to get there. And it's just a matter of whether I want to do that or not. And so, you know, losing a gig for me was I've never really been worried about losing gigs. It's just like, OK, well, that one's gone. That one's done. Um, what's the next thing I can do? And I would just get out there and hustle and, you know. That, that's the last time I really had, I mean, well, that's not the last time I had to do it with this studio, with the studio solar studio that I'm in now. Like I had freelanced with my the one that we filmed your drum course. Yeah. In. The one that I'm in mm-hmm. right now. Um, and then we filmed the drum course in like I had worked freelance for this, for the owner of this building and the studio f- since 1998, like on and off here and there. Um, you know, and because of his connections in the classic rock world, I was able to work with uh, Pat Travers and, and uh, Liberty DeVito. And, you know, like, just, I, there's a lot of guys I don't even remember, but, you know, there's records sitting up in the wall. I don't even remember recording, uh, you know. But throughout that time, I was in and out with the studio. I did a, a Felix the Cat cartoon that was huge in Japan. Um you know, a lot of different things with this studio, but the same that, I mean, it's this whole starting all over or looking for the next gig has happened to me several times. And the last time it happened to me, which led to where I am right now was in 2012. Um, I was, well, I, I'd been a touring musician with bad, with a Brian Howe from bad company of starting around 2008. Um, after being hired to play on his record, and so I played on the record. Brian asked me to join the live band. I did that and was with him for two, almost two years. And uh, that was like mostly weekend, fly out date type touring, you know, a lot of fairs and whatever bad company plays, you know. Um, 
as well as during the week, I would work my theme park gigs and then but I'd fly out on the weekends and play the gigs. Um, and then the band 10 Years from Knoxville, Tennessee, um, who has that song Wasteland is their big hit. And uh, they were looking for a drummer because their drummer had moved to lead guitar when their lead guitar left their lead guitar player left the band. So the drummer who was the main songwriter anyway and a great guitar player, he's like, I'll just play guitar. So they were looking for a new drummer. They were out with on tour with Shinedown, which is a band that I cut almost all the demos for before they were Shinedown, and um, pointed them in the direction of Barry Kirch, who's their current drummer, who's a college buddy of mine. Um, Barry and uh, all the guys in Shinedown was like, well, you should, you know, Matt Brown is a great, I don't know if he has a gig or not, but he's he would be perfect fit. And so I got that gig as, as a result of them recommending me and landed it with a phone call without them even hearing me play just because I was recommended so highly by the guys in Shinedown. And so I was with 10 years from 2010 to about 2000, the beginning of 2012, somewhere in April, I think. Um, and then they went in to record their, their record. And of course, with, you know, the songwriter being a drummer and guitar player, he took over the duties. Well, you know, he decides after they record the record that he wants to play drums again. So I was left once again. See you later, Matt Brown. Yeah, he's like, unless you know how to play guitar, we don't have a, a job for you. So I was once again left without a gig. So at that time, um, I turned to this studio here, uh, which was a, a open... Well, before that, I hey, he had started sending me songs from the record to start learning because we were, we, you know, the before the record came out, we were going to do a tour um, to start promoting the record and then the record would drop. So I was getting uh, rough mixes and learning the songs and needed a place to rehearse. So I contacted uh, Mike, who's the owner of this building. And he was in China uh, doing a lot of work in China for years and years and years. Um, but he's like, yeah, the place is not being used. So I was able to set up my drums here and practice. And when I lost the gig with 10 years, uh, I basically was like, I think I can get this studio back up and running. And so I did. I cleaned it up, um, cleaned up the studio, got the computer, which was uh, just in shambles. I got it back running and the Pro Tools up and running and started recording some bands in here. And after doing a little bit of work, in the studio and get my, my feet kind of back into the studio thing, I, I quickly realized that I could turn this into something a lot better if the studio looked and sounded better. Mm-hmm. So I talked to Mike and I was like, listen, I can, I think I can remodel the studio for $4,000, which is like pennies, you know, especially when you see what this place looks that, like now. Yeah. The place looks great. Yeah. $4,000 is pennies for a studio renovation. Yeah. I mean, overall, the whole thing costs $6,000 with the flooring. I, I, over, I misbudgeted when it came to the flooring. Um, but everything else, all the acoustics, the, uh, the wood, the finish, the, the, I mean, everything that was in this place, I built, I designed, and I did it for $4,000 and I did it on my off time when I wasn't working at the theme parks. So I was able to to live really tightly a budget I budgeted to where you know I could live off of um, basically like like seven hundred dollars every two weeks um, while I wow. yeah so I would work I would work a couple days a week like two days a week maybe pick up a gig here and there to cover the the holes but 
do two days a week there and then work and build and construct the studio four or five days a week. Um, and, you know, had a shoestring budget that I was working, you know, personally living off of with, you know, food and, and rent and all that. And, uh, but I was able to you spend most of 2000, well, it took me, I started it in February of 2013, the remodel, and I finished it in September of 2013 with all, I only got help from a couple people cause I couldn't lift like giant sheets of plywood you know, by myself. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple guys come in and help me put up some of the walls and stuff like that. But overall I did everything. Um, so, okay. Well, real quick, yeah. that is an incredible budget. How did you figure out how to do it? Not only right, but do it right for so cheap because man, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, I haven't built a studio in a while, but I've been involved with some studio builds over the years. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, well, pricey. It doesn't begin to cover it. Yeah, I helped my dad build two studios before this. Um, So, and one of them was one that he designed. And, you know, I I was a little younger then. So, you know, I was in high school. So I didn't help out as much as I could because I just wasn't strong enough most of the time. Um, And then the the second studio, his big studio now, uh, my grandfather and my brother and him uh, built the whole place. And that was a legit, like, blueprints, like, the whole nine yards and that took us two years to build. So I remember like what went into the design aspect from how we were building that. And I had, and you know, this, this building that I'm in now has had good, a good guts basically, you know, I had a nice size Mm -hmm. live room and then the control room was almost as big as the live room. And the, the wall dividing the two was already there with some glass. So the structure was there, but, when it came to getting off of the dry, you know, building the studio out and not having it drywalled, I, I did a lot of research, man. I did hours and hours of research on acoustics, on uh, materials, where to get the materials in town, what, what mm-hmm. was the cheapest way to do the acoustic treatments and build the things I wanted to build in the studio. And, you know, luckily there's some mater- there was some materials left over here that I could repurpose. And, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of research in order to do that. I guess the point is just that you don't have to have a million dollars to have a really nice studio. No, not at all. I've been I've been to your studio. We recorded Ultimate Drum Production there. It's yeah. a nice place. Yeah. It I mean, really it's is. As nice and as, especially it, considering $6,000. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as nice as it could be without gutting the thing and starting all over. You know, like, honestly, if, if, I, if I had, you know, 20 grand to do it, it would have been a little bit better, but okay, okay, but but. I mean, ultimately, my job was I, I, the problems that the studio had before acoustically were, were easily solved by just retreating everything, like taking the the studio as a whole and looking at it as an empty slate versus trying to make something sound better by hanging stuff on the walls. Like, I tried that, it didn't work, you know, the room needed an overhaul. You know, the guy who built it before did was not a studio designer, and they kind of took the old school approach of like, well, if I put carpet on the walls, that'll help knock off, absorb some of the high frequencies, which it did, but it also made it sound like a a box, you know. Um, so for me, it was like, okay, I just need to redesign the acoustics of this room, and um, I, I lucked out, man. I happened to I I scoured every Home Depot looking for the specials on wood. 
You know, so if one thing was on sale, it was like, oh, is there enough of this here to do what I want to do? Yes, there is. All right, then I'm saying, you know, like all of the all of the oak that's in my live room was on sale for 50% off and they just happen to have two pallets full of it. And it was, mm-hmm. how much do I need? And I need all of this except for one sheet and it would cover my whole room. And it was like, okay, I saved 50% on that material. That drastically changed my budget, you know? And I was able to take a little bit more money and put it into the the uh, the absorption material, the 703 and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, Andrew Wade, I talked to him about it a little bit when he was designing his studio, and he kind of approached it the same way of like, how can I get the best sounding rooms for the the lowest amount possible by researching mm-hmm. alternative means of acoustic treatments, you know? Um, but yeah, but that was, I mean, all of that, was me putting my foot down saying, okay, I want to reaffirm myself as an engineer, as a producer, as a a studio drummer, you know, like I want to put my foot down five years, almost five years of touring, you know, people didn't, they didn't know I was home anymore. I started from a blank slate, Mm -hmm. you know, I had to land another theme park. I mean, luckily I had a theme park gig that kind of was, let me go on hiatus. And then when I got back and I was like, okay, I can take but that was only two days a week, you know, so... It's interesting that you say this because I know a lot of guys who, you know, they had a studio business and they toured. Yeah. And then they came back and, you know, they lost their clients. Mm-hmm. Or they had a studio business and stopped doing it for a while. They had kids and... Right. Stopped for a while and now want to come back, but they don't have the momentum they had before. Right. And they feel lost. And here you are saying, I was out of it for five years and did it. Yeah. I mean, you just have to do it. I mean, the, I, you know, what's funny is like those five years, I didn't do anything except for play drums in the studio. Like I would still get calls to play on people's records and, you know, occasionally would pick up a session while I was on the road on an off day, you know, type that type of thing. Um, so I was still in recording, but I wasn't doing the recording, you know? So that for me after five years was like, okay, I need to brush, brush it off and kind of hone my skills. And, and so much had Mm -hmm. changed, like so much had changed from 2006 to 2012. Like, I mean, the, the mark, the studio, the the whole atmosphere of the studio, not just, it's completely completely different. different. The landscape is completely different. Like now all of a sudden a lot, there's a lot more affordable gear, you know, that 2006 was almost like the tail end of another era. Yeah, it really was. I mean, to put things in perspective, like when I brought, came back to the studio, we had a Control 24, like the first version, and that was our preamps. You know, that's all we had is a Control 20. We had an Avalon 737 and a Control 24 and Pro Tools 7. That was when I came back here into this room in 2012. Here's a 2006 perspective. My death metal band had gotten signed to Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. No track record, really. Yeah. Got, I personally was sent to England for three weeks to watch Colin Richardson mix in a Neve room for three weeks in London. Wow. Paying full price to the London studio plus 35 grand wow. for the mix. Wow. That's some 2006 shit. Yeah. Well, I was, when I was signed, I was in a band that, uh, in two, I think it was 2002. 
Yes, it was two thousand tail tail end of two thousand yeah two thousand two. I was in a band that was put together by um, Tony Battaglia, who's a producer that produced mm-hmm. like Mandy Moore and NSYNC and uh, the Shine Down record, and you know like stuff like I was I was his session drummer, so he put together a band with some guys from Jacksonville that Pete Thornton, who's another producer, had. Mm-hmm. You know, he was working out of uh, studios up there, and, and you know, Pete did like the original Limp and Link, uh, Limp Biscuit demos and and stuff like that. So he was working with two songwriters out of Jacksonville. Him and Tony paired up, and we kind of put together like this Jacksonville Orlando supergroup type thing, without even playing a gig. Just off of our, off of our demos and showcases, we landed a. You know, the band was put together in February. We landed a record deal with RCA in in August. From and never and we never even played a show. Amazing. We never even played a live show in front of real people until after we had our record deal. You know, like um, and just to give you an insight on the budget, our, our I mean, granted, we had a you know Tony had some good lawyers on his side working it. Our first record budget was $250,000. Jesus. And it was yeah. it was an exponential deal. So the second record 500, the third record 1 million, the fourth record 2 million, an exponential budget like that. So the and we were signed for a seven record deal and the seventh the seventh record the budget was something like insane like 16 million dollars or something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I still have that contract and I look at it and I'm like, man, this is incre- this is incredible. We had $250,000 budget for the record. We had $100,000 grand uh upfront signing bonus. You know. And then the crazy thing is like a month God, af- we didn't get anything like that, but we were a death battle. Yeah. Band. The crazy thing is a month after we got that record deal, the singer was killed in a car accident. Sucks. Yeah. And so the band went nowhere, you know, it's, but it was a, it was a interesting experience, like to say the least, you know, but yeah, that, but those budgets don't exist anymore. They don't even exist for like huge artists. Like, you know, unless you're, unless you're a, a seventh record on the same label type artist, mm-hmm. you know, that's when those, those, old, especially like a Lincoln park. Cause that was right, right after the Lincoln park record had dropped is when we started doing that stuff and got that record deal. It was the same year that the Lincoln Park record had had dropped the first one. Yeah, or a Slipknot or something. Yeah, yeah. Those type of bands, you know, they're locked into those deals that have the those huge budgets. But nowadays, man, you're lucky if you get ten grand for a record. And that's like a huge budget for most people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Exactly. So there's so, not a lot of money in this business is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think there is. It's just Shifted. Yeah, it I has think shifted. Yeah. In some ways, I think there's more than ever. Yeah. It's just gone through a transformation, and it's not, you know, the, the smart people will find it, but uh, if you're lo- if you're kind of going to the same well, yeah, you're going to get thirsty. Oh, totally, totally. And I started to figure that out when I was living in Florida. It was, that was freaking me out, like around 2013. Yeah. Kind of 2009, 2010, when I was still in the band. I kind of saw it off in the distance and it started to give me anxiety. But when I was in Florida around 13 or 14, yeah. it was freaking me the fuck out. Like I saw the well, I don't know. I just saw that like 10 more years of that and I'd be fucked. Right. And a lot of people knew it would be fucked. Yeah. So um, hence what I'm doing now. But I do think 
that there are plenty of opportunities for people to do really, really well for themselves in music. Yeah, totally. People still make music. They still listen to music. Mm -hmm. They love music. Music's not going anywhere. There's just a shift in how it's made and in what people will pay for, but they'll still pay for it. Right. It's just yeah. what they'll pay for has changed. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's it's funny because currently I'm wrapping up uh, a record I've been working on for a couple years with John Anderson from Yes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the last podcast I was on, I couldn't talk about it. But since then, you know, the I, the reins have been let go. That was like we, a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can talk about it now. So the past two years, I've been working on this record um, with John Anderson from Yes, and not only is it filled, you know, with some some of the guys from Yes, like I mean, the original record started in 1992. Um, you know, massive budget. It was recorded at Conway Studios. Um, Chris Squire on bass, Alan White on drums. Like some of the guys from Yes involved. And then the whole project was shelved, and uh, it was resurrected by uh, studio Mike, the studio owner here, who's producing it. Um, he started the groundwork for the resurrection in '98 of this project, and it just came. You know, it finally got the go ahead a couple of years ago in 2015, and um, so you have that type of record that's still being made, and you know, like it's been awesome working with the type of musicians that I'm working with. And I mean, like a, like classic names that everybody knows. Yes. Um, and not, that is really amazing. Yeah. And not only that, like I'm getting to play on the record as well. Um, because I'm here, you know, like I'm here, I'm, I can play, I can actually play drums. So it's quicker for me to set up a kit and just go out there and play whatever needs to be played and get the sound that we're looking for, then it would be to put in a MIDI part to hold place hold and then send it out to somebody. So I ended up playing on the record a lot, um, you know, besides recording and now we're in the mix process. So that is one project. That's one side of the work that I'm doing on. And then the other side of the work is um, I'm working with unsigned nobodies um, that have found out about me through word of mouth, you know, and they're, you know, they're, paying a decent amount of money. They're making it worth my time. But, um, you know, so there's two opposite ends of the spectrum that I'm working at. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of bands in between those two that are looking for people to work with, you know? And the thing is, is like, I'm getting gigs, not, not because I'm, you know, I really respect what, uh, Finn and, and Brian hood and those guys are doing in the business world. Like I really respect it. And I, I wish I had time to to actually put my ducks in a row like that, but I don't um, because I'm so busy with this record. Yeah, but you're just, a, I bet if you actually did that, you would figure out how to have a multi-million dollar studio because right, yeah. you're, you're already, I think that in your case, you're a special case. Um, you know, it's like you're born into it. Yeah. Kind of, in a lot of ways, like I was born into the musical family thing. Mm-hmm. My parents' friends were like Itzhak Perelman and Andre Watts and Pinka Zuckerman. These are the people that would like come over for dinner. Right. And I'd wake up with like Andre Watts practicing piano in my house and like That's traveling a nice way the to world. wake up. 
Oh, man. It was fucking awesome. Uh, thinking back to that is crazy. Like, at the time, I didn't think it was crazy. But now, like, I realize just how nuts yeah. it is to, like, you know, to be in that environment. But the thing about it is that since I was basically indoctrinated into it as a child, it the fact that it's hard to make a living at it or that it's risky or right. any of that stuff didn't, I wasn't given that chip. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I wasn't either. Like it, that yeah. never made sense to me. Like people were like, uh, you know, the, the musician jokes that have run rampant about, Oh, you know, like, especially the drummer ones. How do you, you know, how do you know, what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend, you know, homeless. And I was like, man, this, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. Like for me, you know, that's not my experience at all. Yeah, so exactly the the idea that you're you're that this is a risky a risky industry to me is like, well, I mean, it's risky in the sense that you never know who you're gonna deal what, with and maybe business what deals. What isn't with, risky? You know, yeah, what isn't risky? But anything worth doing is going to have a, an amount of risk to it. And I think the people that see it through uh, you know, we'll eventually see some sort of success. I mean, I never, absolutely, I never imagined to be in the situation that I'm in right now with this place. I mean, I hoped, and that was ultimately the goal is to be able to do something of the, of the caliber that I'm working on. But when I, when I, you know, when I went to Mike and was like, I can turn this into a place that makes money. I thought I can just tap into the local they, music market. Dude, it's and, in your DNA. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really it is. is. I look, I know for a fact that if, just say URM died tomorrow and I had no other business prospects. I could grab a guitar, practice for two months yep. or work on some engineering for two months and be back in the music game right. full time, making a living at it. Yeah. I have no doubt in my mind. And I know that like you would be the same way. If this studio burned down, you got no insurance money, yeah. your dad moved to Mars and Disney was was like taken down by a sinkhole, right? And you got moved to Lithuania. You could still figure out a way to make it work because yeah. it's in your DNA. Well, I don't want to so, do anything else. You know, like when it really yeah. comes down to it, I I I don't want to do anything else. When I think about you know having a job that like my best friend, you know, had worked at. Um, a place for, you know, like f almost 15 years and had a really good, you know, really good living. And then they downsized and let him go because he was making more money than a lot, you know, than most of the people in that position were. And he's, he's had to start all over and he's, you know, still looking, you know, he's at a job now that's kind of just covering his basic income needs. And, you know, the whole time he's, he's never really been happy at any one of those jobs. You know, he's, he's made a good living you know, or at least used to. And I've always been of the ilk, like I would rather have to eat nothing like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all day long and really enjoy what I do than be loaded and eat steak every night and be miserable for eight hours a day. You know, I, com I completely agree. Um, but I do think though, that there is a place for the business content, like, the the Brian Hood stuff, or yeah. we have a program coming up called Career Builder that be, we've been working on for two years. It's better. F it's not for people like you or me. It's for the people who have enough talent to make it work, but they don't understand 
the ins and outs of how to actually make this a viable business you can, you know, support your family off of or something. It's right. not, not, not for dudes who think that they want to get rich and famous right. or something. But like, I feel like now more than ever, because there are so many more musicians than ever and so many more opportunities to record, a lot of people think that it's harder than ever to make money at it. I think it's the opposite. Oh, yeah. Thing. There's more opportunities than ever. And so the for the people who just want to have it as their job like and make like a good job out of it, that's what this business content is for. Mm-hmm. The people who don't have it in their DNA and who aren't delusional into thinking that in two years they're going to take over all of Will Putney's bands and then be the next CLA. Right. I mean, there will be a guy... There will be a guy who supersedes Will Putney in metal. There will be the next CLA. Right. There are those guys. There will always be the next millionaire pop producer. Right. But, uh, you know, that's always kind of been a long shot. The thing that's not a long shot now, which I think was a lot harder actually in 2006, is for someone to make a middle class, normal living in a home studio. Right environment like i think that that's a new thing i mean there were those back then right but uh i think that that can be much more common now and i think that that's that's what the brian hood content or career builder right or or that kind of stuff is aimed towards and of course maybe one of those people will become a superstar or two or three right yeah i mean there's never count on it though the the, i i saw a glimpse of that those superstar type people. There's a couple people at the summit that are oh, just yes. super young, like Dude, 20, are, 20 years yes. old, 21. And just the talent, like, you know, since the summit, I've been, I've talked to a couple of the members and, you know, uh, start, I actually, you know, it started a friendship with a couple guys that, you know, as a result of that, you know, talking to them at the summit and being in communication uh, with them since then. And, you know, there's uh, like I had uh, what's his name, Ruben, who won. Uh, I think mm-hmm. last month. Did he win last month? To Ruben has won three times. Yeah, he won three times, yeah. and he's like, "Hey, he sent me a thing today." He's like, "I just put up. I just did this uh, Christmas thing, and I produced it and played everything and sang and mixed it. Just let me know what you, you know. I'd really love you to rip it apart for me." And I played it, and I was just blown away. Like, seriously, this guy. I mean that type of talent at that age is is unbelievable to me and so there's people like that that as long as they you know fight through it and keep the drive i think the drive is more important than anything don't, else don't develop a bad drug habit yeah yeah don't develop any terrible don't habits be jimmy, don't be a jimmy rosenberg yeah uh, you know so if they you know the talent is there and it's like i keep I keep telling... Um, did, did you meet Luke Mansell Ward? Yes, I did. Yeah. That kid's impressive. Yeah. I, and there's several. There's several of the kids, several of the guys there mm-hmm. that were just like, wow, okay. I wish I was in your place when I was your age. I, you know, it was a different time. But um, I, th- I, keep, I keep telling like some of my students that I teach, uh, both in the recording side of things, because uh, I teach at the uh, Arts Magnet here. In Orange County, um, I've started teaching the recording class as an outside consultant guy for the the senior level or third level uh, recording students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, occasionally I'll talk to kids that they're really excited and they want to do this 
after, you know, they want to make this their living as recording and, and producing and, and that type of thing. And when they ask me like the, what they should do, I mean, I tell them, you know, if you're going to go to school, don't go to a school that is overpriced and that focuses on this. Go to, there's plenty of schools in the, in this area that you can get a regular bachelor's, at least build towards a regular degree while still mm-hmm. taking the recording classes that they offer. And, you know, the, our community college or, well, now a state college, but Valencia here in town on their main campus, they just invested millions of dollars into a multi-room uh, recording environment. You know, like with well, they got to get nail the mix in their curriculum. Yeah, they they have they have like a you know an SSL room and a Neve room and you know and it's a community college thing, so mm-hmm. it's not super expensive. And I tell my students, if you really have to go to school, go there. If you don't have to go to school, buy some gear with the money that you would take for your first semester. You know what is that? You you know your first semester with housing and all that stuff. Stay at home if you can. Buy some cheap gear. Do a nail the mix. Uh, you know, if you if you're into metal or rock, do nail nail the mix. There's others for for different genres that focus on maybe the dance music a little bit more. But whatever, do those type of courses. And then I said, and then at the end of it, they're like, "Well, how do I get to the level?" And I said, "Man, it's it's about drive. It's not about talent. If you develop your skills, the talent that's all talent is is development of skills. And not and if something comes naturally to you, that's I don't define that as talent. Like, I really think talent is achieved. It's not inherent. It's not mm-hmm. an instinct. Um, and, you know, so the talent is one thing, and everybody thinks that you have to be super talented in order to really be successful, and I and I don't agree with that at all. I think you have to be... Some of the most talented people I know are the biggest losers. Yeah, exactly. I think you have to be the most driven. Um, mm-hmm. And it... You know, if you're the most driven person and nothing is going to stop you, then talent that you're a talent, if you have talent, will help. If you're not talented, if you're not talented at all, but you're still driven, you will eventually get there because your drive is going to take you there and you won't say no. Um, Not to be cheesy, but that's why we put unstoppable in the business name, because that, in my opinion, is the key ingredient to almost anything in life. You just have to, you cannot let things get in your way. That's true. Like you literally have to take obstacles, crush their skulls, drink their blood and keep going. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what it's about is just trying to get to the point you want to get, you know, and uh, years ago, I was a friend of mine was doing like an interview on like local musicians that had gone on to do, you know, whatever. And at the time I was touring with, uh, with 10 years and, you know, she asked me the question of, uh, you know, so what is it like to be successful? And I, and I was like, well, th- I mean, well, what does that even mean? Yeah. I mean, that, what does that even, I, that's exactly what I was, I was like, I don't know if I understand the question because the definition of success changes at every accomplishment that you make. And, and, and if you're, if you're really driven, then you'll never be successful. You'll get to a point where you're comfortable and you might choose to stop because you're comfortable, but you always know that personally, there's another level that you could go to, to really Man. be successful. <laughs> and as soon as you get to that step, there's another level that you'll shoot, you'll shoot for as that being successful. So just to give you a perspective on that, in 2015, 
my lowest point financially in maybe since the band in July, I made 1300 bucks in income. Mm -hmm. It was rough. And my biggest goal was get 500 subscribers to the podcast by the end of the year. Yeah. That was like everything. And we did it. And then it was like 2016. Uh, I want us to have 1500 by the end of the year, 2000, if we're lucky. And uh, then we hit Black Friday and had our biggest month ever in 2016. Yeah. And we were like, wouldn't it be awesome if this was every month? Like, think about right. how much stuff we could do. But that's unrealistic. But let's set that anyways as the goal for 2017. Because that's then successful, now, right? We did that in, exactly. <laughs> you were looking at but five, we, five. Now we're doing. Now we're doing that in 2000. We did that in 2017. And actually, if we did less than that, we would feel like something is really fucked up. Right. It was like 2016's Black Friday is now a low month for us. Right. And so 2018, is the goal is something that in 2015, I would have laughed about. I would have been like, no fucking way. But like, if I was looking at 2016's goals now, I'd be depressed. Like the the it's like going down a highway at night. You can only see as far as the lights show you. Right. But there's still road. Yeah. After that. Exactly. Exactly. And th that to me, that that is a perfect example of, of how success changes as you move up. You know. And the, the crazy thing is for me, I don't even feel like I've been moving up. I know that I have been, but for yeah. me, it doesn't feel like it's been moving up. It feels like I've just been traveling along with, with a goal in mind and hard work. And it's just that road keeps getting longer and longer, but I'm not moving upwards. I'm just moving side to side, you know, like in a, in a, mm -hmm. in a linear pattern when, you know, if, I mean, when I, when this record is done and my name is on it as engineer, mixer and musician and you know i'm gonna look at this record and it's i mean i'm sure i'm gonna have a moment of reflection where it's like okay maybe i moved up a notch you know <laughs> um but it doesn't then, feel like that then I, I move on yeah I, I, you know what kind of like taking it back to the beginning kind of like the same way that when something bad happens you get scared for 45 minutes and you move on right i almost feel like achievements are the same thing. Take it in for 45 minutes and then move on. Yeah. Don't do dwelling on them is almost as bad as dwelling on bad stuff. Yeah, totally. Both of them will get you stuck. I read a book once by somebody who is now very hated and I'm not going to mention his name because just mentioning his name will cause a lot of problems. Right. But I read, I read this book in 2001. So give me a break. But he talked about, achievement and success and how, you know, he'd have a goal, like I want that plane. Right. And if he'd make the deals and get the plane, you know, and then he'd be on the plane and be like, cool, I got the plane. That's all it is. And then I want that yacht. Right. And, and, and I mean, look, not every, I don't mean to say that all goals are materialistic. It's just the idea that every time you have a goal that seems unattainable, like I want that mega yacht or whatever, but from this guy, right. he gets the mega yacht. He's on it. It's cool, but that's it. That's that's it. My right. soul is not fulfilled. There's yet another goal. Right. Um, and I think that that's kind of what success is, is to always 
uh, to always hit those milestones, but keep going for more. Oh, totally. Totally. I, yeah, you're never, I mean, I, I guess it'd be much easier if you were, if us creative people were satisfied ever, <laughs> you know, but I don't, I don't think that Dude, it's not just creative people yeah. though. Like if, if I think it's human nature, because if it was just creative people who are never satisfied, then, you know, people who deal in finance all the time, um, would stop yeah. the moment they hit like the moment they hit like a $10 million net worth and could live forever right. of interest, they would stop, but they don't. Right. Exactly. They keep going more and more and more. Yeah. It's human nature. Yeah. It's, yeah, totally. For better, for worse. <laughs> so anyway, I like, like it. so that's how I ended up here currently. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted the yacht, got the studio. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, and thanks for teaching at the summit and everybody listening. Uh, pay attention to Matt and us over the next few months because uh, we're releasing Ultimate Drum Production, which is a course we made with Matt. You're going to be learning a lot more about it over the next few months. But it is literally the most comprehensive drum production course ever made on the planet. And I know this because I've been a part of two of the other ones. And this puts those to shame. And it it's great, not just for people who have like a million dollar studio. It is good for people in any situation. Any situation you're in where you want to get a drum sound that's in your head to actually come through the speakers, no matter if you have shitty gear or shitty drums or, or, or you're in a million dollar studio and, you know, uh, you know, if you don't know what you're doing in a million dollar studio, all you're going to end up with is pristine sounding garbage. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is good for people of all levels. We covered it all and, uh, be on the lookout and Matt, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Yes. Thank you. I uh, thank you for in, involving me in the summit and I mean, everything. It's been an awesome experience. I, I really enjoy the working with you guys and, um, you know, I really enjoy just getting this information out there to me is, is, is key. I would rather everybody success be successful, you know, and if, if my information can help with that success, then I mean, that's, that's huge. That's more gratifying to me than, than anything. So well, there's I, I two ways it. you can look, there's two ways you can look at it. And I've worked with people in the past who have the opposite view and lo and behold, we do not like each other at all, but there's the, the limited pie view, mm -hmm. you know, where right. you have to act like dogs around a water, around a food bowl, snarling at each other. The moment someone gets ahead, snarl, keep them down, right? Because they're taking your fucking pie, right? And the, that pie is shrinking. What a shitty way to live. Yeah. Or there's the mentality that rising tide lifts all boats, or sun shines for everybody, right? Or infinite, prefer, infinite room yeah. at the top. Yeah, exactly. I like that one. Yeah. That was. So much cooler. Yeah, that is way cooler. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.